Would you open up in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2 once again? 1 Peter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 18 today. Last week we looked at this broad application, this, this broad command in verses 11 and 12. And the first application related to civil authorities. So today we're going to continue looking at those obligations, looking at the ways that we're called to um, follow the commands in verses 11 and 12, to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Uh, so we're going to begin, this is, this is zooming in on the household um, for the first time, and we'll, we'll spend some time talking about household. So would you join me, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Hear the word of God. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. My, my 10th grade English teacher used to have this saying, whenever anybody complained about the work we were doing, or, or maybe we, we had some hard stuff to read, we read Shakespeare in the 10th grade, people would complain to her, and she would always say, life is hard, and then you die. That was her blanket response to all of that. Now, I, I wouldn't recommend adopting that as a mantra for your life, but there is truth in that. Life is hard. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to fantasize about being an adult because it looked like they had it so easy. Um, in my mind, an adult gets to make all the decisions and basically do whatever they want. But as you are mostly, most of you are probably fully aware that's completely wrong. And kids, I hope you're hearing this. Not only do I not get what I want all the time, I also have to make a bunch of decisions that affect a bunch of other people. I thought it was going to be easy, but actually, every year that passes, there's more responsibility. It gets harder. And now I look at my toddler and I say, well, she has it really easy. <laughs> I wish I could trade places with her for just a couple hours. Life is hard and then you die. Or better yet, life is hard because you're always dying. You're always giving up a part of yourself. You're already always giving up something that you want. No matter who you are or what you do, suffering It's inevitable. The question then is what do you do with it? If I'm going to suffer, if I'm going to struggle, if life is going to be hard, what do I do about it? The answer, this is probably not surprising, the answer is Jesus Christ. 
Grace is suffering in Christ. Grace is suffering in Christ. Now we're going to look at that in two parts. First, we're going to talk about grace as suffering. Why is it a grace that we suffer? And second, we'll talk about how Christ actually leads us through suffering and shepherds us through it. Uh, Before we get to that, though, I I do want to spend just a moment talking about some theology. I I felt like I needed to hit this briefly at some point, um, and now is as good a time as ever. So in Reformed theology, we talk about something called sphere sovereignty. It's this idea that there are various areas of life that are autonomous, that have their own authority. They're not governed by outside human sources. The big three spheres that we talk about are state, family, and church. Well, you'll notice in 1 Peter as you actually go through those progressions, we've talked about the state. We're about to talk about the household. And in chapter 5, he'll turn to um, the, the church. Each authority has different roles and responsibilities. And as members of these communities, we have responsibilities to them. This is important because Peter is going to tell us to submit in each sphere. He's got a, he's got a, he's got a command for submission in each sphere. But I want to be clear that submission looks different depending on the authority. Servants don't submit to their masters in the same way that citizens submit to government or wives submit to husbands. It looks different in each situation. They're analogous, but the practical outworkings are going to be different. So that's just kind of an aside, but I want you to hold on to those categories um, as we move through these passages. And I'll also be returning to that as we work through that. But let's look at verse 18 and talk about grace as suffering. Grace is suffering. Look at verse 18. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer... For it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So we begin here in the same way that Peter begins with his application to civil authorities. Peter says, servants, be subject. Same word. But there's an interesting turn in this. If you glance back at verse 16. uh, Verse 16, Peter calls us servants of God or slaves of God. And recalling this, he actually seems to immediately jump to a broader application. From this specific application to servants and households to a more general application. So in other words, Peter sees servanthood, slavery, as a paradigm for all of life. Now, the the direct application still holds. So servants are supposed supposed to honor their masters. And Peter expects that. Um, But there's a broader application as well. So whenever you see servant or slave in the New Testament, you shouldn't automatically jump to 1800s America. A slave in the first century was simply someone who sold their time. They would agree to work for an arranged period. Then they would be released. So we do much the same thing when we talk about employment agreements, which should tell us something about how we think about that. It's not quite the same, but there is some significant correspondence. So the immediate application to you in terms of servants being subject to their masters is that employees should honor their agreements with their employers as far as possible, honoring God, first of all. But Peter takes this very specific application 
And he grounds it in a broader principle. In verse 19, he says, it is a gracious thing. If you have King James, it says, thankworthy when one endures unjust suffering. Now, the word he's using there is charis, which almost every other time you see that word in the New Testament, it's translated grace. The same word happens in verse 20. In other words, suffering is a grace of God. You might be able to translate it. For this is a grace when mindful of God, one endures sorrows. This is a grace in the sight of God. So let that sink in. When you suffer unjustly, it is an example of God being gracious to you. Now, how does that work? Well, if we think back to the beginning of 1 Peter, remember how faith is like gold? It's being purified and tested by fire. And so if that's true, and suffering is this fire that our faith is going through, that means that suffering is an indication that God is actually working on your heart. Suffering is actually an indication that God is working to change you, to make you more holy. Now pay attention to the fact there's actually two kinds of suffering. We may suffer for our sin, and Peter says that's just par for the course. We can earn our suffering. It's just getting what we earn, and naturally we're comfortable with that kind of exchange. We're comfortable with retribution. Of course bad people get punished, that's part of life, but the other side of the coin requires a major mental shift. When you suffer unjustly, you may come to realize that it's not really the world that's afflicting you. It's not really these things outside that are afflicting you. What's really afflicting you is God. If, if that makes you uncomfortable, it probably should. A, a lot of times we think about God like he's a benevolent gumball machine. Right? We put our quarter in and we get what we want out of him. But Hebrews tells us that our God is a consuming fire, a purifying fire. He's holy and he's just and he requires us to be pure to come before him. And so he does that. He purifies us. But he doesn't do it without kindness and love because our God is still kind and loving. So he offers a solution to our suffering, a solution to our injustice. Grace is suffering, but grace is suffering in Christ. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. So Peter tells us exactly why unjust suffering is a grace. It's because Jesus suffered unjustly. We've got a list here drawn directly from Isaiah 53 of what Jesus is like. He's sinless. His words were pure. He wasn't vengeful. And he died for the sake of others. If anyone suffered unjustly, it's Jesus Christ. All of these things point to a person who does not deserve suffering. But he submitted to it. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. 
But what does that mean for us? What does that have to do with our own suffering? Well, look at verse 25. It says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That, by the way, is, is church language. You might translate that pastor and bishop. Jesus is our pastor. Why do we follow him? It's because he knows the way. He knows suffering. He knows injustice. And he can actually lead us through it. That's why he's our shepherd and overseer. Because part of his job is actually leading us through the valley of the shadow of death. You've probably heard a hundred stories like this, where there's a house fire, and a parent goes in to save their child. And the story always has this element. Without fail, when the, when the fire is surrounding the family, when everything is, when they're surrounded and there's, there's no way out, without fail, the parent will wrap their child up in their arm and run through the fire. It's, it's an instinct that we all have. That's what atonement is. The word atonement means to cover up. You see, Jesus does the same thing to us. When we go down into suffering and death, he covers us up and he guards us. That doesn't mean that we have an easy go of it. We might get burned in the process. But it does mean that ultimately we're safe. And we're with someone who knows the way out. We may come out bruised, but he he guides us and he leads us through suffering. So we we shouldn't seek out suffering. I don't want to suggest that. But if suffering is a grace, we need to learn how to grow from it. And the answer is in Jesus Christ. Our Savior suffered and died. And if we want to follow him, we too will suffer and die. But if we follow him, we'll also have resurrection. See, Christ's promise to us is not that we'll never suffer. It's not that we'll never have any problems. It's that ultimately we'll have new life. That that Jesus will actually bring us through that and give us a new hope, a new birth, a new body. And so we cling to him like a child clings to a parent because he holds fast to us as well. In a few minutes, we're going to sing a hymn that reflects on Psalm 23, which, by the way, will be 125, say, so like shepherd lead us. But it draws this language from Psalm 23, describing a shepherd guiding his people through the valley of death. You get a similar thing in, in Luke 15. And I'll, just, I'll just read you this parable of Jesus from Luke 15. Jesus says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. When we're under the yoke of suffering, Jesus comes to find us. He doesn't silently wait for us to show up. No, he, he actually goes down into danger. He goes down into the valley. He goes to the place where we're lost. He picks us up and he carries us out, bringing us into new life. So in your suffering, serve with fear. 
Because you are a servant of God. He has called you to your trials. He has called you to your afflictions. And he intends to use those to sanctify you and to make you new. So serve him with fear. And know that Christ will redeem you. Because he is with you. He sympathizes. He understands. And he knows the way out. So follow him. This is your call today as servants of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.